0: Hey, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, right? Especially since we just survived winter snow blast 2013. Yes, and the three quarters of an inch of snow that we got in Kaiser was was rough, but we made it. We made it. Whew. Right? But it is. It's, it's starting to look like Christmas. We've got lights and trees and lights on pallets (laughs) that say Christmas and, and there's nativity sets everywhere and Christmas music is playing 24 hours a day and everybody's favorite Christmas movies are on TV and as you drive you see large oversized inflatable Christmas characters in people's yards which says Christmas and stockings, right? Nothing says Christmas like putting an orange and a toothbrush and some lifesavers and a sock, <laughs> putting it up on the fireplace. That's Christmas. But what really says Christmas to most people, and, and especially children, are presents, right? This is what Christmas is, and as a matter of fact, this is uh, a present for my daughter, uh, and. My wife wrapped this. Uh, You can tell that because it actually looks good, and it's not in a gift bag, right? Because that's what I would have done. My daughter can't wait for Christmas. This past week, we put her to bed, and she came out, and we put her back to bed, and she came out, and we put her back to bed, and she came back out. You know the routine. And we put her back to bed, and she came back out, and she said, I can't sleep. And we're like, well, of course you can't sleep, because you're standing in the living room. (laughs) You sleep best when you're actually in your bed. And so I put her back to bed and she came back out and she said, I can't sleep, Dad. She sat down next to me on the couch. She said, Christmas is coming. <laughs> I said, I know. And then she said, Have you seen my presents, Dad? I said, Yes. She said, Are they good? I said, Well, Santa has taken the shovel to the reindeer pen for your presents this year. <laughs> She knows. You guys are like, what a screwed you are. She knows. She knows. And and so I sent her off to bed. But she just can't wait for the presents to come. Like a lot of us. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have peeked at your presents early? Come on, be honest. Sometime before Christmas morning, have taken a peek at the presents? Come on, put those hands up. We know you're there. How many of you have actually gone as far as to unwrap the presents to peek at them. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty telling about who you are. I was talking to one of our middle school pastors this past week, and she said her mom left the house just before Christmas, and her and her brother went into the closet, and they pulled out all of the wrapped presents, and they unwrapped them and looked at every single one of them. But then mom came back in because she forgot something. And found them sitting on the floor amidst all the unwrapped presents, and so her mom picked them all up, put them in bags, and took them back. (laughs) So good. (laughs) I was like, oh, what a great story. How many of you would have answered different except that you're sitting next to your parents? Mm Mm-hmm. I see the honesty here. Because when you see the present, there's just something in you that you're just like, oh, man, I can't wait, I can't wait. Hurry, 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 it's time to come. Because wrapped inside of this is generosity. It's mystery. It's anticipation. And it symbolizes waiting. Waiting. And and what I've really done in this service is significantly impaired my daughter's ability to concentrate Because she knows that on stage is one of her presents. And she has to wait for it. We're going to talk about waiting this morning. And what it means to really wait. We're taking a break from our series in Mark. And we're going to spend the month talking about the Advent. Talking about Christmas. And the title of this month's series is Measured by the Manger. Because oftentimes we measure our growth and success by the standards that the world gives us. We... Measure it by money and possessions and titles and power and beauty and activity and results. But Jesus came in contradiction to those things. When Jesus came, he gave us a new way to measure ourselves. He gave us a new way to measure growth, a new way to measure success. It's kind of like, you know, remember when Mary Poppins met the two kids and she pulled out her measuring tape? But it didn't just have numbers on it. And when she measured Michael, the boy, it it said, extremely suspicious and stubborn. And then she measured the girl, and it said, rather inclined to giggle, doesn't put things away. And then, of course, she measures herself, and it says, practically perfect in every way. (laughs) Cha-ching! Right? A new way to measure. When Jesus came, he gave us a new way to measure. You see, God's approach to humanity... In the manger, isn't just some cool way that he decided to come. It's not just some interesting way that he thought, oh, this would be great. When God approached humanity in the incarnation, it was revealing who he is and what it is that he values. And so when we look at that, we're like, okay, God, we are supposed to be like you. And we want to know the things that you value. We want to know who you are. And so as we look at this story, we're going to see these things. What would it look like if we measured ourselves by the things that God values? What would it look like in our lives if if we were measured by the manger? If our successes were measured by the things that God values? And so over the coming weeks, we're going to talk about humility. We're going to talk about generosity. But this morning, we're going to talk about waiting. Because when we look at the story of Christ's coming, we see waiting. We see a timetable that God comes on. We see God's schedule isn't exactly what the world thought the schedule should look like. We see people waiting. Galatians 4.4 says, When the right time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. When the perfect time came, God sent his Son. But perfect for who? You see, because that time took a long time. You see, the people in the Old Testament would have heard the promises and the prophecies. There were hundreds of promises and prophecies in the Old Testament that point to a coming Messiah. And what that did was that stirred up this longing inside people's hearts. They couldn't wait. I can't wait for the Messiah to come. I can't wait for this deliverance to come. And these prophecies are familiar to us. We quote them, especially this time of year. Isaiah 9-6 says, for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah seven fourteen. the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, O Bethlehem. You are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. Jeremiah 23, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah chapter 9, and so many more prophecies, promises that we are familiar with, and so they are written, and so let them be done, and so, God, you have promised these things. Bring this about. Make it happen. If you have your Bibles... Would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 4? If you want to grab a Bible out of the pew rack there, if you would turn to page 1511. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And if you grab the Bible out of the pew, and if you turn to page 1511, you'll discover that there's not really a 1511. The number's not there. It's, it's this blank page. It's this blank page between Act 1, the Old Testament, and Act 2 here, the New Testament. But what this blank page signifies is 400 years. They're called the 400 silent years. And as you can kind of hold that single page in your hand and just understand what that represents. You see, Malachi was written in about 430, 425 B.C., and so between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, there's these 400 years. And they're silent years because there, there weren't prophets during those times. There, there weren't prophecies being spoken. There weren't books being written. God wasn't revealing new things to the people. It doesn't mean that nothing was going on in the world. There was a lot going on in the world. And if you can kind of picture it like a play, and the the curtain goes down at the end of Act 1, but what's happening behind the curtain is the whole stage, the whole set is getting changed so that when it comes up in Act 2, the setting is entirely different. And the more we kind of understand these 400 silent years, the better it helps us to understand the New Testament. You see, in the latter part of the Old Testament, Babylon was the world power. But somewhere around 500 BC, Persia became the world power. So when the curtain closes on Act 1, Persia's the world power. Then about 150 years later, this man named Philip united the islands of Macedonia, right? Macedonia is Greece, so he united the islands of Greece, and they became strong. Now, Philip himself isn't as important as his son is. Philip had a son named Alexander, Alexander the Great, all right? Which is absolutely cool that you can put the great after your name. Feel free. You can dub yourself that later. Alexander the Great, when he was in his 20s, took the armies of Greece and he conquered Persia. And Greece became the world power. And what that meant was Greek culture began to invade the world. The more that Alexander invaded other countries, the more that this Hellenist culture began to invade these other countries. The historian Josephus tells us the story where Alexander was marching through Syria on his way down to conquer Jerusalem. And he had a dream the night before that he was going to conquer. He had a dream that a man in a white robe would come to him and tell him the future. And so the next morning as he wakes up and he's leading his army into battle to conquer Jerusalem, the high priest from Jerusalem walks out in his white robe with the scrolls of Daniel under his arm to meet Alexander. Alexander. Alexander goes running towards him and says, I had a dream about you last night. Tell me the future. So the high priest opens up the scrolls. And he reads from Daniel this prophecy about this nation conquering this nation, conquering this nation. And Alexander sees himself in these prophecies. And he's so blown away by it that he spares Jerusalem. And he sends this high priest back with honors. And he marches around the city. And he continues to invade all the way down and around and through Egypt. He died when he was like 32, 33 years old. And it says he wept because there was no more world to conquer. He conquered the known world. And with that, Greek culture had gone everywhere. Now in 284 in Egypt, the ruler of Egypt decided to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And so he took 70 scholars and they painstakingly translated the entire Old Testament And we still have it today. It's called the Septuagint. And that's just a word that means 70. Because 70 scholars did it. Because Greek was the universal language at the time. And that's why there's so many Greek quotes in the New Testament. Well, about 100 years later, the power moved further west. And Rome rose up. And started to gain control of the world. But the Greek culture was still influencing everything. As a matter of fact, in the nation of Israel, there was a group of people that said, we don't want to have Greek culture invade our culture. We think that we need to live by the Mosaic Law. So what they did was they started to separate themselves. And the word to separate is the word Pharisee. And so this group separated themselves out of culture and said, we're going to stick to the old school rules. There was this other group that said, no, we want to welcome Greek culture. We don't believe in the miraculous anymore. We're so progressive. We believe in this. They were called the Sadducees. And they started to influence culture that way. Well, once again, Jerusalem, one of the most conquered cities in the history of the world, was in trouble in 63 B.C. And this Roman general named Pompey, he stepped in. And he kind of put the sides. And it's like, you want Jerusalem and you want Jerusalem. Guess what? We're taking Jerusalem. Rome became the power. But he did set up one of the local guys' ruler. And this guy set up his two sons to rule Judea and Galilee. And one of his sons is named Herod the Great, again. And when the curtain comes up in the New Testament, the the whole scene has shifted. The power has moved from east to west. The culture has changed. The language has become unified. And that's why God says, when the time was right, when the time was perfect, I sent my son. Now, it's easy for us to talk through that history, and we talked about 400 years pretty quickly there, but think about the people who were living it. Think about the people that knew the promises, that were waiting on the deliverance of the coming Messiah, whose weeks turned into months, turned into years, turned into decades, turned into centuries, and nothing. That's what this page signifies Waiting Waiting on the Messiah Now I have to be honest with you I hate to wait And probably because I can't stand still right? Newton's first law of motion A body in motion Tends to stay in motion And a body at rest tends to stay at rest So just keep moving I don't like to be slowed down right? I hate it when I see this symbol here the spinning beach ball of death. Right? My computer does, I don't know, a million calculations a second. But when I have to sit there and wait like 30 seconds as this thing spins, I'm so frustrated. I'm like, oh come on, I'm wasting time. I don't know. Maybe you have a PC and it's the hourglass of doom, followed by the blue screen of despair. I don't know <laughs> what it is, but just that moment where you're just like, oh I can't stand that. Let's go. Parents, have you ever thrown your kids in the car for a road trip and you give them your technology and books and snacks and that last eight minutes? And then they say, What? Are we almost there yet? Are we almost there yet? Right? We hate to wait. That's why we have instant everything. Right? That's why we have drive through windows. That's why we have microwave ovens. That's why we can get our books when we want them and see movies when we want them and communicate with people when we want to communicate with them we can get results now we don't want to wait and it's funny how that shapes how we live right because we think all of these things around us are there to serve us and really the next logical step then is to say well if all of this around me is to serve me then all of this then revolves around me and the world revolves around me and if I can't get what I want when I want it I become frustrated and impatient and angry because it's the message that we receive it's, it's how we're measured think of some of the phrases that we say think of what we're told he who hesitates is lost take the bull by the horns make it happen step up to the plate put your game face on just do it let's go people Even in Matthew chapter 7, it says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. There's a cliche in business that says, hope is not a strategy. You can't just sit and hope for things to happen, right? Hope is laziness and poor planning. And so we think waiting is a waste of time. Waiting is the desert between where we were and where we want to be. And we want to be out of that desert. And so we want to do, and so we want to go, and so we want to take the bull by the horns, and so we want to make it happen, and so we say, come on, hurry up, let's do this, let's go, let's keep moving, we can go, let's do this. And we say to God, God, hurry up, hurry up, make it happen, God, let's go. And usually when we say that to God, it's for the advancement of our own kingdom, not for the advancement of his kingdom. You know, even if it comes from a place where we're like, oh, well, no, God, this is, this is of you. This is what you want. But it's, it's how we view the world. We usually want to advance our own kingdom and not his. And as much as we dislike it, we're all waiting for something. Think about that for a minute. Ask yourself, what, what am I waiting for? Maybe you're waiting to graduate. Maybe you're waiting for the weather to warm up. Maybe you're waiting for your hair to grow back after a really bad haircut. Maybe you're waiting for the perfect fill-in-the-blank, job, house, burrito. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for. Maybe you're waiting to be in a relationship. Maybe you're waiting for your relationship to get better Maybe you're waiting for a family situation to get better. Maybe you're waiting for children. Maybe you're waiting for your children to come to Christ or for your children to return to Christ. Maybe you're waiting for the pain to go away. Maybe it's a little harder to articulate for you. Maybe you're waiting for God to do something in you that you know he has promised to do and yet it hasn't really happened yet. In reality, all of us are kind of waiting for the same thing that all of these people were waiting for during this time. We're waiting for Jesus to show up. We're waiting for Jesus to come on the scene, whether it be in our lives or whether it be his return, we're waiting for Jesus to come. Romans 8.23 says, we wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his children see, just like the people on this page here in these 400 years, we know the promises. We know what God has promised to do in our lives. We know that Jesus has promised to show up. And maybe you've prayed. Maybe you've taken something to God. Maybe you've laid something at the feet of Jesus and just waited. And maybe the days have turned into weeks, have turned into months, have turned into years. And it's been silent. What do we do with that? How do we live with that? How do we wait well? Because waiting can take us off track. I mean, typically, if we're waiting, and and let's say you're waiting, you know, for a ride or you're waiting for a meeting. and, And the first thing we do is pull out our phone, right? Especially when we're waiting alone, because it's like, listen, I'm important, people. I can get stuff done still. I can still be doing while I'm waiting. And then we do this and we look at our phone and we do really important things like check Facebook and um, <clears throat> sports scores and all the really important stuff. Then we make a phone call or two. Then we pace and we look really impatient as we're walking around and then we get a little bit frustrated and distracted and, and then we want to go on and do something else, right? And, and that kind of happens when we're waiting just in our lives, just on situations when we're waiting for Jesus to show up mentally. You know, we're, we're, we're watching, we're waiting, we're hopeful, and then questions, and then the doubt starts to creep in, and then we get distracted and tired and bored. We get busy with other things. We lose focus. We get forgetful about what God has promised, and we tend to give up. Waiting can be devastating if we don't handle it correctly. And so that's what these people were doing. The curtain has gone down, and there's been 400 years. And so how devastating was it? When the curtain comes back up, what do we see? What do we see the people doing? Matthew and Luke give us the story of the birth of Christ, We're going to look at Luke, Luke chapter 1. When the curtain comes up, right away we see Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it says, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. We find the parents of John the Baptist waiting for a child and waiting for deliverance. We find them waiting for the Messiah. In that same chapter, we see Mary. And the angel says, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. And then she does this amazing song of praise in chapter 1 where she says, God, you remembered us. You promised these things. You delivered. We've been waiting for them. Way to show up, God. In chapter 2, we find a man named Simeon. It says there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout. And was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. In that same chapter, Anna, a prophet, was in the temple. She never left the temple, stayed there day and night worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. When the curtain comes up after 400 silent years, we find people waiting. And so there's got to be something to how they were living. There's got to be something to the way that they waited to allow them to stay faithful. You see, we think waiting is this. In our minds, waiting looks like the DMV, right? It just kind of hurts your stomach thinking about it. You're like, oh, what a waste of my life sitting here. Or we think waiting looks like this. The traffic to get across the bridge into West Salem. At least when people who live in West Salem tell the stories, that's what it sounds like. Or if you're a student, waiting looks like this. Oh, just praying for that clock to hit three. But it has to be more than this. It has to be more than just that, ugh, oh, because that's what makes you discouraged. That's what makes you give up. I want to tell you what waiting is. Waiting is three things. Hopeful watching. Waiting is hopeful watching. Have you ever stayed up late in the summer to watch a meteor shower, and you go outside at night, and you stand, and you stare up in the sky, and you're just like, all right, bring it on, God. You're waiting for God to just flick a star across the sky for you, Right? And then you do this, and you look down, and someone goes, there's one. <laughs> You're looking this way. There's one. Oh. And then you finally get to see one and how awesome it is. Just that hopeful watching. You see, the prophets had given these prophecies and these promises, but then they told the people, but you got to keep watching. you got to put your hope there. You can't get distracted. The prophets were always saying, you keep giving your attention to other things. you got to stay Focus That's why Micah 7:70 says, "As for me, I watch in hope for the Lord." As for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I will continue to watch for the promises of God, knowing that the more I wait, the more that fear creeps in, the more that abandonment creeps in. But I will continue to watch, hopefully, for the promises of God. It's not watching and wishing. It's not just our own wishes, like our own desires. It's watching with hope, which is this confident expectation that God will do good. This hope that God's promises will be fulfilled. Not our wishes, but according to God's perfect plan. This hope in this one who can do it. And so as it turns out, hope is a strategy. Because we are to hope in him that he's going to do good. That's why when the angels show up and they talk to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, they're like, don't be afraid. I have something good to tell you. And so there's an attitude shift that we need to take, this mental shift where we're like, okay, I'm going to continue to hopefully watch to see God work because I trust that he's going to take all of this, the small and the big, and he's going to work it for his perfect plan. And that he is working. My hope is in you. And so I will hopefully watch. Waiting is also patient activity. We always think of waiting as as passive, something that's determined by events that are out of our hands. Well, sometimes. But waiting isn't inactivity. Waiting's a verb, and it means to be steady. It means to endure. And in Romans 8, where it says, we wait with eager hope, wait there means to put away all that should remain behind. You see, part of waiting is holiness, because holiness means a separation from sin and a drawing closer to who God is. That's what holiness is. That's what waiting is. Waiting is to put things behind that should be left behind. Waiting is holiness. And that's why when we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Simeon and Anna, it tells us that they were righteous people. That they were pursuing holiness. The people that God uses in this story to bring about the birth of his son are people that were pursuing holiness. You see, active waiting is to be fully present in the moment. It's the conviction that something is happening where you are and you want to be a part of it. The conviction that this moment that you are standing in is the moment. And that takes patience. You see, impatient people always think the moment is happening somewhere else. Impatient people are always like, well, the moment's happening over here. And when they get there, they're like, wait, the moment's happening over there. When they get there, the moment's happening somewhere else. And that's why their moments always seem empty. Patient people dare to live where they are. Patient people pay attention to the things that are going on around them. Patient activity is knowing that what you are waiting for is growing up in the soil that you're standing on. That God is planting seeds, and these seeds have been planted, and they're growing. And like I told you, I hate to wait, but God's teaching me to be patient and to be present where I am. I was reminded this past week, I took my family to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, unless you hate to wait. Right? Because that's what you spend most of your day doing. And you can get in this mindset of like, all right, hurry up, hurry up, let's get this through. It's all about the ride. It's all about the ride. But you know what? I get to stand in line with my family that I love. And my girls aren't running off to be with their friends or doing anything else. We're all pretty focused. We're all right there. Something's happening right there in line as we're waiting to have this experience. And maybe what God is doing in us while we are waiting is just as important as what we're waiting for. Maybe it's more important. Waiting is this patient activity. It's this pursuit of holiness. It's that something is going on right where we are. And I also want to let you know this. It's this mind shift with this watching. It's this pursuit of holiness, this activity. But you also have to understand that it's open-ended. Waiting is open-ended. So often we wait on a schedule. When we see the presents, we know that there will come a time, and we know the dates, and we know the morning that we get to open them. But in waiting on God, it's open-ended. Too often we let our schedules dictate our waiting, and then we get disappointed, and then that slips into Despair. It's open-ended, which means it's open-handed. You don't get to pull the levers. You don't get to control it. You don't get to go to God and say, okay, God, uh, I need this by next Friday. Bring it on. Or God, you have till January 1st after that, right? He's the one in control. He's the one with the perfect plan. It's about his kingdom coming, not ours. And so it's open-ended. So we actively submit to him and we just walk on in confident uncertainty, trusting that he is God. Let me leave one picture with you in closing. I, I want you to imagine this time of year where we love getting family together and we decorate our house and, and family's coming. And I want you to have this picture that family's coming to your house and, and, and good family, the family that you love, not the awkward uncle that tells inappropriate stories and falls asleep on the couch. Not that guy. The family that you can't wait to come to your house, Right? That family. And, and you keep going by the front window and you keep peeking out and you're like, oh, they're coming, they're coming. And you're watching and you're watching and you know it's going to happen. They're going to come. But you're not just stuck at the front window, right? There's more to it. There's things that you have to do. There's things that you're getting ready yourself, and you're getting the house ready, and you're sampling the cookies because that's important, and and you're waiting, and you can't wait for that reunion. You can't wait for the time that you get to throw the door open and see, but there's a lot going on. There's a watching, and there's a waiting, and there's an activity, and, and you're just trusting that they're coming on their schedule, but they're coming, and that's how God wants us to live. That's how God wants us to live. You see, don't mistake God's silence for inactivity or his slowness for sloth or that he doesn't care about you. God loves you and he is bringing about his plan and his kingdom in his perfect timing. And it's up to us to wait faithfully.